Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week, A New Nation, with a message entitled, The Future of Israel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Where are things going? Who's going to lead us? Does the future look hopeful or ominous? Is there reason for optimism or should we brace ourselves? What has God to say about our future? Now, these questions become especially important when we come to a new era. You know, when whole populations sense there's a profound change coming, these questions are especially pronounced. The world in the 1930s, when a Great Depression had devastated hopes and dreams, and then out of that arose Germany, fascism, fanaticism. People were asking, where are we heading? You know, as I record this, the world is struggling with a global pandemic. Are we at another change of era? Well, of course, we don't know. My personal prayer is that God would restore us, that he would have mercy on us, so that our world is not launched into a time of upheaval, but still, we don't know. What does the future hold? Where are we going? Who will lead us in days to come? We want to know what is the future. The book of Genesis takes us through a number of eras. These are times of profound change. Well, the first era is the era of creation. Then is the, you know, era of the fall and the turbulence that led to a global flood. Then finally, God calls Abraham and promises a universal blessing through this one man and his family. But that promise does take time to develop. Stop for a moment now and think. All of us are uncertain when we individually or when our family or our church or our country or our world comes to a time of transition. Things are no longer what they once were. But at these times, we need to remember that the, that the future belongs to God. I want you to listen to what Job once said. He had transitioned from a time of prosperity and material blessing of every kind to a time of suffering. And out of that experience, he speaks about what he knows of every human being. Job 14, verse 5 speaks of man, and it says, Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is in you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. In Acts 17, 26, the apostle Paul said, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So think of the words, having determined allotted periods. I hope those words don't frighten you. Remember that God is loving, but also remember that the days of the era in which we live, the boundaries of those eras are determined by God. And when he says so, they come to an end and never return again. Well, very good. Jacob is dying. The era of the patriarchs is over, and the era of nationhood is about to begin. And we've already seen in our study that Jacob is greatly concerned about both the leadership of the new nation and also about the future of the nation. That's because these are his children, but it's so much more than that. He knows that the future of this nation is the future of the earth. For this nation will become the source of blessing to the entire earth. And on that basis now, he begins his prophetic words. So we start with Genesis 49, 1-2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. 
Jacob calls his 12 sons to his dying bedside. Unlike his own father, Isaac, who tried to utter his blessing in secret using deception, Jacob knows this moment is far too important to allow his words to remain a private matter. He's determined that all of his sons will hear everything he has to say. And so he starts with the oldest, with Reuben. And that's to be expected because in that culture, we would expect the leadership and a double blessing to fall on the firstborn. But it's not to be. Genesis 49, 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you will not have preeminence because you went up onto your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. The first three lines started well enough. Jacob, of course, begins by mentioning Reuben's place of prominence. He is the firstborn, and so it would seem his position in the future would be secure. Indeed, if you go forward to the law, you're going to find in Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17, that a father is forbidden from transferring the blessing of the firstborn to another son. The firstborn's place in the family structure is to remain secure. And Jacob doesn't skirt this issue. He does call Reuben his might, the first fruit of his strength. It's an agricultural metaphor. It speaks of the choicest of the product. You know, in that sense, this son should always have been the apple of his eye. And as such, he should have been preeminent in dignity and power and forever have been given the place of family leadership. But then openly, before others, Jacob remembers Genesis 35, 22 says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, there are some theories as to why Reuben did it. I mean, one explanation is that it's simply an act of depraved passion. Another explanation is that he was attempting to overthrow his father's leadership of the family and to establish himself as the leader. You know, it's kind of like what Absalom did in the civil war with his father, David. He openly slept with his father's concubine to show the nation that his father's authority had been removed. And so Reuben chose Bilhah because that was his mother's rival's wife's maidservant. Well, Genesis never tells us the motivation, but this thing is so profoundly evil that from that point on, Reuben has forfeited his rights as the firstborn leader in the family much like Esau, his uncle, had done before him. Jacob calls his son unstable as water. You know, the word unstable means insolent or proud, undisciplined, reckless. He's just the kind of a man that, if he were given leadership, would destroy the foundation of the nation. And so, in front of his brothers, Jacob assures that all understand that Reuben is never to be given leadership over this young nation. You know, it's interesting, this. You know, when the time came for the land of Israel to be parceled out, the tribe of Reuben was given a portion on the east side of the Jordan, away from the center. Number 16 mentions that at one time it was the Reubenites who had questioned Moses' leadership. You shouldn't trust the Reubenites. Indeed, by the time we get to close to the end of the history of the Old Testament, we come to the book of 1 Chronicles. Now, that book was written for the returning Babylonian exiles who were, who were coming back to the promised land. And it was so important for that generation to remember their history. And so Chronicles records the history of their people. And 1 Chronicles 5 verse 1 says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, 
for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. And so this action was never forgotten. It became the symbol of just how seriously God takes sexual sin. You know, sexual sin cancels out the right to lead. You know, in our day, how many pastors have been rightfully removed from leadership because of sexual sins? You know, to remove a pastor for sexual sins is required by God. It's a righteous act. The sin of Reuben reminds us that Reuben is not removed from the, from the covenant people of God, but he is removed from leadership. And with that, we might expect that the leadership would then go to the next oldest, who would be Simeon. And here Jacob now puts both Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, into one category. So I'm reading Genesis 49, 5-7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You might wonder what Jacob's referring to here. Well, he has in mind an incident that's recorded in Genesis 34. A young man named Shechem raped Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and the sister of the 12 brothers. And in absolute rage, Simeon and Levi conspired together and they not only killed that young man, but they managed to slaughter his entire city. You know, for our purposes, the word sword, which Jacob uses here, is an unusual Hebrew word for sword. You know, some have suggested that the word should be translated as a desecration of the vows that had been made to the city. But however the word is translated, the meaning is clear. Jacob will not give leadership to two sons who are known for anger and cruelty. These are the marks of men who can't lead well. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when when Paul sets out the qualifications of a leader of a local church, he demands that the leader is gentle, not violent, not given to outbursts of anger. Leaders who lead through intimidation and threats or the use of violence only beget dysfunction and trouble in the future. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube a new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. You might wonder what happened to the tribes of Simeon and Levi. You remember that Jacob said they would be scattered in Israel. Well, in the case of Simeon, their inheritance in the promised land ended up being entirely within the territory of Judah. They eventually became the weakest tribe in Israel and later 
When the territory of Israel is divided between the north and the south, well, we hardly hear of them at all. They were either absorbed into the tribe of Judah, or as some suggest, some of them may have made their way north and were scattered among the ten tribes there. So the situation with the tribe of Levi ended up much better. You know, in the future, when Israel was building a calf idol in the wilderness and and paganizing themselves there, Exodus 32 tells us that the Levites distinguished themselves by showing loyalty to the Lord. Eventually, they would be made into the tribe of priests. See, even though they, like the Simeonites, would be scattered among the Israelites, the scattering of the Levites would be for the purpose of serving as priests to the entire nation. See, the difference in the destiny between Simeon and Levi reminds me that the consequences for sin need not result in changeless disfavor. See, Levi reminds me that God may indeed turn what seems like a curse into a great blessing. And if that's you, take note. If you've sinned against God so that your future has been changed, please don't lapse into discouragement and failure. Romans 8:28, which reminds us that God causes the good of all who love him, also reminds us that he can even use our own sin and the consequences of our sin to work together for our long-term good. The story of Levi is a hopeful story, and it reminds us that we are never beyond God using us for his great purpose if we will but change our ways and humble ourselves before him. Well, now the first three brothers have been rejected from the leadership position, and since we know that the first ten had sold Joseph into slavery, while we might think here that that the rest of the chapter would be about why God has rejected all ten from leadership, and then why Jacob was going to explain that Joseph would be the new leader of the nation. But just when we think that, Jacob now turns to the fourth son, who is Judah. And I'm reading Genesis 49, verses 8 and 9. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Now, Jacob says more, but we need to stop right here. Judah is a lion's cub. He needs fear no one. He is protected. He is destined to grow up and dominate the rest of the animals. And so says Jacob, Judah will be a great warrior who will terrify all his enemies. And then this amazing statement, your father's sons shall bow down before you. You know, the 10 brothers remembered how they had bowed down to Joseph, but here it would seem that when Jacob said that all of the brothers should bow before Judah, he must have included Joseph in that count as well. Judah would rise higher than them all. But remember, that time is not now. You see, at present, Judah is only a lion's cub and is not yet the great warrior to whom the nations will pay homage. It may be that in the present hour, the leadership will fall to Joseph, but eventually it would fall to Judah. And of course, Jacob is not yet done in what he says of Judah. Listen to verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this is the central verse regarding the future of Judah. Let's start with a promise that the scepter would not depart from Judah. You know, a scepter is the same as a ruler's staff, and ancient kings would often hold one as a symbol of their unbreakable power. 
You know, you might remember that much later, during the time of Esther, she was encouraged to enter the king of Persia's throne room. And she's terrified, for she knows that if the king holds out his staff, well, she'd be invited to come in and bring her request. But if he withheld the staff, she would be immediately killed. And such was the power of some of the ancient kings. Their scepter was a symbol of that. And so Jacob is prophesying that in full time, it is the tribe of Judah that will produce a great king and that the kingly office would never be taken away from that tribe. You know, those of you who know the history of Israel will remember that a prophet by the name of Samuel came to the home of a man by the name of Jesse. Jesse was of the tribe of Judah. Samuel had announced that he had come to this house to anoint one of his sons as the next king of Israel. You remember that Jesse had eight sons, and Samuel chose the last of the eight, a young man named David. You might also know that in due time, David, the king of Israel from the tribe of Judah, was given a promise. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then expanding on that theme in 2 Samuel 7 is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, that's the promise. David's throne, his kingdom, the heir who would follow David would ask the father and he would give him the nations as his heritage. And all who resisted him would be broken like a potter's clay jar when he discards it. You know, thus a theme develops, which starts at the beginning of our Bible and follows through right to the end. You know, back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God had promised that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. But who would be the one who would redeem the world from the curse of sin? Well, eventually God chose a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and promises him that through his seed, his offspring would bless the whole world. Now, for a while, all there was was the hope and the promise. And by the time of Jacob and his 12 sons, well, the entire thing develops into one large dysfunctional family. But now at the dawning of a new era, as Jacob lies dying, He revives that old promise and says that in due course, the rulership of the world will come from the loins of his son Judah. And when David, the son of Judah, becomes king, God promises that this is the kingdom that will one day rule the world. And that's the theme that continues to run through the Old Testament. And that's why when the New Testament begins, of all things, it begins with a genealogy. It promises that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. And for that matter, the prophecy that was given by Jacob as he lay on his deathbed was being fulfilled. The ruler's staff shall not depart from Judah. It has come into the hands of the one to whom it belongs, Jesus Christ. Now, my Bible says, until tribute comes to him. Well, the New International Version translates that same line, until he to whom it belongs shall come. You know, the NASB translates it until Shiloh comes. So what does Shiloh mean? Well, I think that last translation, until Shiloh comes, is at best a very unclear translation. And I do think the NIV has the very best translation here. 
Judah shall hold the ruler's staff until that one comes who will eternally inherit that rulership. It is Jesus. And of course, that corresponds quite well with the end of our Bible. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. See, that's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all that Jacob spoke of as he lay dying on his bed. That's the hope of Abraham. It's the hope of Isaac. It's the hope of Israel. And with all that was said, amazingly, Jacob has still something to say about Judah. I'm reading Genesis 49, 11 to 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Well, that last part of the prophecy is about the incredible prosperity and peace that will come. Who could tie his colt to the choicest vine and not be concerned that the animal would eat the fertile crop? Well, the answer, only an incredibly rich man. There'll be a time, says Jacob, when Judah's descendants will make sure that food shortages are no more. Let me end with this where I began. I spoke at the beginning of the times of transition, the times when one era ends and a new one begins. Sometimes we're left feeling insecure. But then we're reminded of Jacob's words as he lies dying. The last era to come will be when the ruler's staff is handed over to Jesus himself. Brother and sister, have no fear. Jesus is coming. The world belongs to him. John, you know, we often hear the expression, the end of an era, and it usually references something coming to conclusion. We can be melancholy about things wrapping up, but it can also direct us to consider something new about to happen. Yeah, especially when we're in faith. I mean, if you're not in faith, I mean, the end of an era could mean the good times are gone. You know, if you lived in 1929 and the stock market crashed, um, you would say, wow, and then we move into a depression. So, you know, clearly it was the end of an era. The roaring 20s were over. Um, But, you know, for believers, we know that God closes out eras because he has in mind something glorious in the future. So, I mean, we can't help but see the end of an era with confidence and think of the Lord's return. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, we've had to take steps to adjust our expenses so that all the Bible teaching resources you've come to expect remain available right across the country at no charge. And because of a group of generous donors who share our hearts for Bible teaching, they've committed to doubling your gift this month. The ministry budget target for our fiscal year end is $365,000. Could we ask you to pray that we might meet this target? And if you're able, acknowledging the very real challenges many of us are facing, would you provide a financial gift toward this goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $95,000 so that your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.